0: is offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful Northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com, that's Jim s.com and click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show, EDU edition for this week. Um, we're recording this uh, right after Christmas uh, 2023, so um, those of you listening right away, Hope the end of your end of your year is going well, and that you had a merry Christmas if you celebrate. Um, haven't heard yet how Jim's Christmas went. We'll hear that momentarily when he joins us here. But on today's show, we're going to, um, I think, close out the final Edu show of the year with our continuing dialogue where we share with you what other listeners are doing to implement their own retirement planning using maybe some of the uh, techniques and approaches we describe here on the podcast. We've actually got one um, that we're going to pull up from the dialogue that we did from uh, last summer. Uh, when we did our very first dialogue series, we had a leftover email that we never got to, but promised to at some point, And Jim decided we should try to clean that up and, and chat about it today. So it'll be all dialogue, some fresh and new email that just came in, and and then one that's uh, from a few months back, but still related to what we're talking about here. So, Jim, when you're ready, you can join me and uh, let us know how your Christmas went. I suspect it was kind of quiet, but uh, mine was the opposite of quiet. I had about 15 people over at the house uh uh so not a low stress christmas it was just well i wouldn't say it was stressful it was just a lot of activity Uh, not a lot of resting (laughs) so how about you and
3: my mine was the opposite um thanksgiving is my big day as i said i had 15 people over my house for thanksgiving counting me, 15 um but christmas i just spent uh down uh at rachel's i cooked a uh Pumpkin, cranberry bread, and a shepherd's pie. Hmm. So uh, I did the cooking. She did the eating. And we watched, because i never seen it. So we watched at least the first two. I got to say the first one was good. The second one sucked. And I watched the third and the fourth one later this week. The whole, um, oh, God, I don't remember the actor's name. Mark Wahlberg, I think, the old Marky Mock Mark guy. Uh, I think it's called Mark Wahlberg, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did, like, the the Bourne stuff. He's, like, some guy named Jason Bourne. Remember those movies? Like, The Bourne Identity, The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne This, The Bourne That? Yeah. So, so you, we, I started watching. I never saw him before. Those aren't Christmas so shows. I watched, huh?
2: Those aren't Christmas shows.
3: No, oh, it's not a Christmas show. It doesn't have to be a Christmas show. I'm all Christmas showed out. The whole month is nothing but Christmas shows. <laughs> so we watched... It's a manly thing. I did the cooking, so and then I want my manly shows. So uh we watched part one was good. I think it was so, called The Born Identity. Part two was called The Born Supremacy, which was really not that good at all. And then I think there's two or three more that we're gonna watch to kinda see that whole movie empire of the born Jason Bourne saga.
2: Yeah, so not to burst and, your uh, bubble, but that that's Matt Damon. Not Marky Mark Wahlberg.
3: (laughs) You sure? I think they're the same guy.
2: No, I'm sure. Which is, it's a little shocking since Matt Damon is from your backyard.
3: Well, so is Marky Mark. I think they're brothers. No, they're not. I'm telling you, they are. (laughs) No, they're not. I don't think so.
2: Marky Mark
3: is somehow uh, related to some. His last
2: name is Wahlberg,
3: though. Isn't there another Wahlberg? I'm I think he you, is Mark a brother, Mark, but it's is, not Matt Damon. Sure, he's not married to uh, related to Matt I Damon. Day. I don't so. know. I don't. I'm not a, a People Magazine reader. I don't follow these things. But I thought Marky Mark was the brother of Matt Damon. Google that real quick. Okay, I'm telling you. I you, think they're you continue
2: brothers. talking about more important things, and I'll look that up. <laughs>
3: Anyways, folks, yours truly started watching the, the Bourne identity, Bourne supremacy and the whole Bourne series. Rachel and I have three more to get through. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know if uh, part three, four and five are any better. Uh, part one was pretty good. Came out in 2002. It's interesting to watch movies from back then. We take our smartphones for granted today but they weren't around in 2002 when that show came out. So it was was funny to see flip phones and pay phones and things like that, that we just take for granted. Okay, today is the last EDU series of of 2023 and it is continuing with our dialogue. I've received several more emails on our inflation dialogue that I kind of want to chat about for the first half of today's show. And then the second half of today's show is an email that we received way back in September when we did our first dialogue series. And I had promised the writer of this email online, I didn't promise him personally, but online, uh, through uh, well, not necessarily online, but through the podcast, uh, I said I would uh, chat about his email. So my intent is the second part of today's show is go back to our first dialogue series. For those of you who are new, this kind of dialogue series was just a a brainchild of mine that that happened. And Chris and I started talking a little bit about our minimum dignity floor approach. I think this was in August. And we started getting emails and asking for people to share with us, you know, how did they approach retirement? And that's what spawned the dialogue series. Then we started chatting a little bit about inflation. So we asked for the next dialogue series, share with us how you are attacking inflation or, or what you feel about inflation and how are you dealing with it uh, with your retirement. And in a perfect world, eventually, I'd love to get the dialogue series to be an actual live call-in so it truly is a dialogue. And uh, Chris is working on that. He's the techie guy in the office, not me. But if he can make it, if anyone can, he can make it work. And if we can, hopefully on a quarterly basis for at least two, maybe three shows in a row, uh, we will be opening up the phone lines, if you will. And maybe we'll be able to record the show live and have you guys call in. Chris will explain to you how he might be able to do this and obviously give you the exact times that you would have to be listening somehow uh, and quote unquote calling in. But that's ultimately where i'd love the dialogue series to go to all right chris before we get into the inflation everybody is waiting with bated breath, sitting on the edges of their seats is somehow mark Wahlberg related to somebody famous
2: well it's not related to matt damon which is the question although he is sometimes the internet did believe that they were sometimes mistaken for one another so you weren't completely off in left field but no there's that's matt damon in that series Does quite a good job. Mocky Mock, doesn't he have a famous brother or two? Yeah, there's another Wahlberg brother, but it's not Matt
3: Damon. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I kept telling Rachel yesterday that he sings. He used to be Mocky Mock. I'm going to have to set the record straight. She's from Brazil. She ain't going to freaking know. But so Mock, whoever, this Damien guy is not Mocky Mock, not Damien. (laughs) No. all right well she thinks it is i'll have to straighten okay. her out uh and let her know that uh i was wrong okay okay and i tried singing mm. the song to her which didn't go over too well um all right so I'll, I'll straighten that all out but you asked how my christmas went so that's what i did i spent christmas telling my girlfriend that matt damien used to be marky mock Mark, and he sang with a group called the funky bunch
2: yeah it could have been worse
3: <laughs> At least the shepherd's pie and the pumpkin cranberry pumpkin bread came out good with a pumpkin from my garden. Obviously, I'm a gardener. I'm not going to go out and buy a pumpkin. Um, and for those who don't garden, so I grew uh, a squash, an heirloom squash from colonial times. It traces its its lineage back to uh, colonial times. Uh, along the eastern seaboard, and it's called a Long Island cheese wheel squash. If you ever want to Google that, look it up, you can. And it was prized for making pies, not necessarily pumpkin breads, but pies back in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. And it truly does look like a cheese wheel. It's just a flat, short cheese wheel looking squash that I cooked one for the first time ever to make my pie filling to make my bread because I don't buy a canned pumpkin at all. And let me just tell you, Chris, maybe I'll put the photo of it in the newsletter. When I cut into this cheese wheel squashes, the first time I ever grew it, it looks fluorescent almost. Mm. the 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 meat is so bright orange. It's rich. It's deep. It's phenomenal looking. I, I was in awe. I took a photo of it. I never saw flesh that orange. It's much more orange than even a pumpkin. Hmm. If you cook a regular sugar pumpkin, um, like I used to in the past for my breads and pies. Anyways, just hmm. figured I'd share that as well. Interesting. All right. <clears throat> you sound real interested. Thank you for humoring me. But it is the last show <laughs> of the year. This is the holiday season, so I'm lightening it up. All right, so one of the things we got in, uh, Chris, was an email from someone who wanted to lighten up the situation and just kind of sent us an email of the PNC Bank Cost of Christmas Index. Have you ever heard of that? Mm,
2: not that one specifically, but I've seen it. The one I used to follow every year or looked forward to, I didn't really follow it, was the uh, um, the – 12 days of Christmas song. They would add up what it would cost to do everything.
3: That's the PNC. That's the oh. one I'm on. So I'm on oh, the perfect. website for this. It's um it traces his history back to Provident National Bank in Philadelphia 40 years ago uh, to lighten up the holiday season. The chief economist of this bank. It now goes by PNC. Uh, thought they should take the 12 days of Christmas and come up with what the cost of that would be. And then for the past 40 years, they've been doing it every year. And this year, the cost of the index is up, I believe it was 2.7%. If you go to their website, they break it all down. So it's pnc.com or just go PNC Bank Christmas Price Index. Just Google that. You'll come to the website. It's a pretty neat website. They walk you through everything, how they came up with the cost of Christmas, how they, they researched the cost of potridges and a, and the French hens and all this other stuff. It's pretty neat. But it does track CPI um, eerily close. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't say every single year. If you start looking through the, the history of it, I can't say it, it's spot on on, but in 2023 is up 2.7%. I think inflation this year according to the government is three point something. Last year, 2022, high inflation year, 10. a percent increase. But if you go towards the more lethargic inflationary periods from 2019 earlier, just a two-tenths of an increase in 2019, a 1% increase in 2018, seven-tenths in 2017, six-tenths in 2016, eight-tenths in 2015, 1% in 2014. That whole period, Chris, where Social Security had a couple of zeros, if you remember. So it does track inflation eerily close, but not spot on. There is some divergence. And I think over the life. Of the uh, index over the past 40 years, uh, CPI has outpaced their measure of the cost of Christmas. But someone thought it would be cute. I looked through it. It was kind of neat. Again, there, there is no link in the show notes. I apologize. But there's a little thing called Google. If you just Google PNC Bank or PNC.com Christmas Price Index, you'll go straight to their website. It's pretty neat to look through. Anyways, I just figured I would kind of share that, and I thank the person mm-hmm. who sent that email in.
2: I'm surprised it actually has been tracking CPI well at all, only because some of the things listed in there are so bizarre that as time goes by, I think it's going to be harder and harder to source some of those things.
3: And yeah, uh, and I didn't, I didn't read through, and I should have, and I'm going to go back and read through hmm. how they got like the twelve lords leaping. Mm-hmm. How do they even figure out the cost of a Lord? They do explain a little bit about what they do to come up with the cost, but um, it is it is neat, and I didn't realize um, under turtle doves, they said those are the cheapest birds you can buy, so that's why their cost doesn't increase as much mm. as partridges, which apparently have a higher inflationary rate than turtle doves Wow so
2: well that right there's that that information right there is worth the cost of this podcast today. <laughs>
3: This is according to PNC Bank. But uh, maybe if I have a chance, I'll go and I'll try to see how they come up with the cost of 12 lords a leaping and nine maids a milking. Milk, I'm going to guess. I didn't read it. They must look at the price of milk, I would assume, for nine maids of milking. Oh, is that eight maids of milking? Seven swans a swimming, six geese a laying, five golden rings. I think it's eight maids of milking. So what's number nine? I don't remember now. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember either. Yeah, I don't remember what nine is. All right. Anyways, I don't want to spend too much time on the cost of Christmas index, but people can go look through that. And I'm sure Chris will Google and find out what the ninth day of Christmas was.
2: Oh, I will eventually. I'm
3: sure you will. Okay, so we did get another question that uh, you might want to opine a little bit on because it kind of relays. We've talked about this in the past, but let's address it again. All inflation kind of related. So this begins, Hi Jim and Chris, I started listening to your podcast two years ago and was hooked. I am almost through all of your online archives. Let me pause there. We did get an email recently, Chris, from someone asking if we could expand the online archive beyond a year on iTunes. I don't think we can on itunes I'm, i might be wrong on that maybe you know but i think we also decided as a firm because things change all the time we wouldn't let it go back more than a year or is there any thoughts on that you know i don't remember on
2: that. itunes we would have to check with jacob um to see uh, on that but there's uh, a deeper archive on our website the retirement and IRA so, if you're looking beyond what you could get with your regular podcasting sources, we've got uh, a searchable history of shows that don't go back forever but go back longer than the iTunes limits.
3: Okay, all right, so this gentleman uh, email does let me find it again. There it is. okay. So he said, I am your typical. Where is this? B-b-b-b- nope, I apologize. He said, I am almost through all of your online archives, a treasure trove of evergreen knowledge. Hmm, mm-hmm. evergreen knowledge. Wow. Both of you have quite a rich legacy. I am your typical Vanguard VG. And yes, I'm an engineer to boot. So here's his hint, folks, from the state. He is from the state, Chris. That has a famous trail ending in it from the settlement of the U.S. Holy worded, but I see the answer. So CVM, the trail oh,
2: ends in that state. And...
3: Trail ends in the state, and I—I I guess I can give a hint. The trail was also named either the trail was named for the state or the state was named for the trail. I'm not sure, mm. but it ends. In that state and the elk that I am looking at right now because I'm recording from home in my room, folks, that I affectionately call the dead animal room, which most people call the sun room because it has a lot of bay windows facing south. But I have a big elk that I actually harvested in Wyoming and it was on private land that contained part of this trail. It was so Mm. cool. And you could actually see the wagon wheel ruts. And they took me to a stream. Um, it, they, it was called, um, oh God, I wanna say Broken Rock Ranch or something like that. And it was a mountain that had split rock, split rock ranch. And it was a mountain with a split rock. And the pioneers would aim for that mountain that, kinda of like um, in Fort Collins, Chris, you can see Horsetooth Mountain from far away. Mm-hmm. This was Split Rock up there in Wyoming because there was a stream near there. And anyways, when I was hunting this private land, the rancher took me uh, to the Split Rock. And the rancher used a stream down there and um, initials and stuff that the pioneers carved in the stones. It was just so cool because I'm a history buff. Anyways, it was along that very trail. Mm. Can you uh, name that trail? Well,
2: I can after your very wordy <laughs> Lengthy description. It's very clear it must be the Oregon Trail.
3: Oregon Trail, yep. yeah. Yep. So and that part of it went through northern Colorado too. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure well, it did. I don't did. think so. Up around Virginia Dale? I don't think so. yeah I
2: don't, I don't think it ever dipped that
3: far south. I thought it so. Might be wrong, I but be I don't wrong. think so. I, well I could be wrong too, but I thought it did. I thought there were some parts of Northern Colorado that the Oregon Trail went through. We'll have to Google that, too, but we won't do that now. Okay, here's the question, Chris, and pay attention. My question, after listening to some of your shows from a few years ago, for your minimum dignity floor, long-term inflation protection, you often talked about laddering two or more spears over time, if needed, for optimal cost benefit as inflation slowly eats the minimum dignity floor. But in more recent shows, you seem to now be favoring the purchase of a single SPIA, single premium immediate annuity, folks. These are the the annuities that Chris and I tend to favor. Not so much variable annuities, not so much indexed annuities with withdrawal benefits, but a pure old-fashioned single premium immediate annuity with a COLA adjustment. Can you please comment on which method you prefer and why? I'm curious to see if there's a significant, co- if there is a significant cost versus benefit trade-off, or if you are now simply favoring a spia with a cola for its simplicity. Mm. I'm going to try answering the gentleman's question then, because I think I know where he's getting a little confused, mm. and then you feel free to chime in. Okay. I, yeah think what he's confusing is how you and I come up with the reserve dollars to put aside. If you're a longtime listener of our podcast, this all makes sense to you. If you're relatively new, I'm going to encourage you to listen to some of our more recent shows over the past year. But Chris and I believe passionately that the younger you, and I often say I'm 60 now, folks. I don't feel young. Trust me. But I do know, compared to my dad, who's 89, 60 is pretty damn young. So there's always going to be an older you, and the younger you is you right now, because you are never going to be any younger than you are right now. I personally feel retirement is an explicit promise that the younger you makes to the older you that their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses will be satisfied throughout their retirement. As, as satisfied as it can be, we all know things can come out of left field and derail the best laid plans. That's why we often say your plan needs to be monitored. It's not set it and forget it. But assuming you monitor it and take care of it, your promise is to the older you that your food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses will be covered with lifetime guaranteed secure income. And because those expenses, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare tend to go up at rates of inflation far greater than headline CPI, there's many ways that you can attack inflation when we talked about those. But invariably, There will be shortages between your secure income, which is usually Social Security, pension, and income annuities, single premium immediate annuities as I've preferred. Those are the only sources of lifetime secure income. In return for that promise, the older you will give you permission to spend some of your dollars now on fun so you can enjoy yourself and the older you will have the benefit of memories of what you did because of this notion that you have to limit spending on fun because fun money for some reason has to last the rest of your life and that you're going to spend the same amount on fun at 60 as you will at 89 My dad right now has just been diagnosed with COVID. I just told Chris that before we started recording. I've got my fingers crossed that the man pulls through. But at 89, he's not doing much and hasn't been doing much for at least the past seven to nine years compared to what he did at 62 when he retired. So to get that permission back to spend on fun you must make sure what you come up with as your fun number has adequately addressed the minimum dignity floor shortages because few people have enough social security pension and income annuities that they may have purchased already few people have enough secure income To cover their needs for the rest of their life. But surprisingly, most people, especially if you're a married couple with reasonable incomes, most people will have enough secure income with just Social Security if looked at solely for minimum dignity floor from about age 70 to about somewhere around 78 to 83. So when both people get their in their social security income optimized, which nowadays because there's few abilities to optimize after 2015 and they changed a lot of the rules of social security since then, it's usually the highest wage earner waits to age 70, the lower wage earner waits to the full retirement age. That's usually the only claiming strategy now that most people do. And when you do that, What many people share with us and you will share with yourself, you Vanguard VGs, do-it-yourself or Excel spreadsheet people, you'll notice, wow, my Social Security at first, with my spouses, optimized for our earning levels, pretty much covers our minimum dignity floor. But it won't forever. And there'll be a crossover point. And it's usually between 78 and 83. Well, here's the dilemma. You need to promise the older you that there will be enough money to cover your minimum dignity floor. In return, they will give you permission to spend on fun. But you can only spend a dollar once. That's what sucks about retirement. be great if you could spend the same dollar three, four, or five times. You can't. You can only spend it once. So we have to be certain. The dollars we put aside to cover future minimum dignity floor needs, especially after a crossover point of around 78 to 83, is adequate. How are we going to come up with the amount of money to leave aside? We as a firm, what we simply do is we project your minimum dignity floor for reasonable rates of inflation tied to those expenses. Then we look at your secure income. We project Social Security with a 2% COLA. Most pensions, if you're blessed enough to have one, will have no COLA if it's a private pension or a modest COLA or minimal COLA if it's a government pension. So we will inflate government pensions depending on what state government you work for and and what the, the historical increase has been. And then if you have a SPIA, we... We are known ahead of time if that single premium immediate annuity increases or not, and if so, what it is. And most, it's zero. My point is this, folks. What we try to do is project your secure income and project your expenses, see where the crossover point begins, what's the dollar amount you need, and what's the growth rate on that. And let's just say the growth rate is 4.7%. I'm making that up. That... Your crossover point is at age 79, and it grows on average 4.7% a year until you die. What we then do is we go to the insurance industry through a program that we have, and you can do it yourself at like immediateannuities.com or other websites, and say, hey, if there was somebody who was 78 years old and they needed $10,000 a year, let's just assume, folks, that's your first shortage amount, about 10000 they need about10,000 dollars. They are He is 78 and she is 76, and they live in this state. They want10,000 dollars beginning at his age 78. They want it to last for both their lives, and they want it to grow at 4.7, or you pretty much have to round up to five, five percent a year. We will get a quote of what an insurance company would want. For today, for a 78 and 76-year-old today, what would they want to give them $10,000 a year growing at 5% a year no matter how long either one of them live? That at a real basic level is what we would look at. We would delve a little bit deeper into the survivorship analysis and maybe the SPIA might pay a little bit less at the death of the first spouse or not. That's getting a little bit deeper into the weeds. But that gives us an idea of what an inflation-adjusted SPIA would need to be reserved. And that's what we're trying to do. We want an adequate number for you to pull out during your younger years and reserve. When the time comes to purchase the annuity in the future, that's when the decision will be made if you should buy a laddered SPIA or a single spear with the increase. My gut tells me most will buy a single spear because it's so much cheaper. And it won't be enough forever. But instead of taking all their reserve and buying this spear, they might take some of the reserve and buy enough of a spear that might take care of this shortage for another six, seven, eight, nine years. They might both be dead by then. If they're still alive, then the 88, 89-year-old them will make a decision. So I think he's kind of confusing our strategy, Chris, of coming up with the reserve amount to us blatantly saying we now favor buying a spear with an inflation adjustment. That's not to say if a client wants to buy it. And it's not your decision. It's the older you. You just have to make sure they have enough money. That's your promise to them. They will make the decision if they want to buy a single spear with a COLA adjustment equal to what they feel they're going to need forever, which is a very simple, straightforward approach. Or if they want to buy a spear that they acknowledge won't take them through for the rest of their lives, but will buy them seven, eight, nine, ten years of protection. And then they'll make another decision in the future with the rest of their reserve. That's what I think he's missing. What do you think?
2: I think that's exactly it. Um, To clear up a little confusion, though, a couple minutes ago when Jim said most people will likely buy a single SPIA, what he meant is a laddered SPIA in in the context of this question. Uh, Most people won't buy the once and done, you know, with the inflation adjustment. The inflation adjustment uh, as part of a a SPIA is quite expensive, and we kind of are still uh, kind of on the side of the fence where we prefer you hold on to your own money um, as long as possible before committing an irrevocable through an irrevocable decision, money to an insurance company. So we actually still probably, I would call it favor uh, the laddering concept where you don't necessarily buy a once-and-done with an inflation adjustment built in. Or if you do, it's more modest rather than larger uh, and holding on the reserve for a few more years to decide then does it still make sense for us to deploy more of this into more income or not. But... uh, uh, you know, I, I think both approaches might work, but it's it's true that we talk a lot about the inflation-adjusted SPIAs as part of the estimating process. It's still a valid way in our eyes of coming up with that lump sum target amount at, in your example, 78, 79 years old, how much the couple of that age might need to have on hand to start deploying an additional secure income strategy. That's where we're using the inflation adjusted because that allows us to pull a single quote and it, it uh, you know, gets us into the, the uh, close enough range for the estimating that we're doing.
3: Okay. One quick thing I want to do as you were chatting, I did go back to the PNC website. Uh, Interesting. They break it into services, so they consider the nine ladies dancing and the 10 lords of leaping, uh, 11 is pipers piping, and 12 drummers drumming as services, and they kind of get what it would cost to hire a drummer or hire um, a a piper. I don't even know if you can still buy a piper. I still don't know. They don't get into how they, they factor in a lord of leaping. Um And what they do with the maids of milking, since that was it, they reflect the federal minimum wage for eight maids of milking. So they look at the federal minimum wage. I guess they think if someone's going to milk a cow, you're going to pay them minimum wage. So anyways, interesting. If you go to their website, they'll explain. And the most stagnant is swans. Uh, Seven swans are swimming. Uh, According to them, didn't even go up this year. You you could have bought a swan this year, same price as last year. So, anyways, interesting little thing if you want to check it out.
2: Even more interesting, uh, the Oregon Trail doesn't go through Colorado at all. Closest it it ever gets is North Platte, Nebraska.
3: Okay. There's some sort of trail that went through Colorado, though.
2: Oh, yeah, there's other trails. Okay. But but the big one, I think the Oregon Trail for most people's can – I mean, there was a whole video game based on the Oregon Trail. Not many trails can make that claim. But – large stretch of it. You know, I mean, it basically cuts the bottom third of Wyoming off on the bottom there. So,
3: yeah. Okay. All right. couple more little quick inflation ones. One gentleman wrote, um, and he lives in the state with the Lewis and Clark trail ended. Um, I have no idea cause he didn't give me the answer and I don't have time to well, That's Google gotta it, be Oregon
2: as well. I would think.
3: Did it end in Oregon? All right. right. Quickly so, Google as I answer his question. Okay. Um, but he lives in the state where the Lewis and Clark trail ended. He says, I'm sending a quick question related to your series on minimum dignity for inflation and tips. This relates to your question about how much folks are worried about inflation. Well, I'm only 38, so I try not to worry about it right now. But with national debt and the action in Washington, it does provoke anxiety. Can you and Chris speak a bit to the correlation between inflation and interest rates? I am certainly not an expert in this, but it's possible this correlation can play into planning for my retirement. I did quick research, and I saw what looks like strong correlation. He said, for example, look at inflation in 1980. It was 15%, and the federal funds rate was 18%. -hmm. Wasn't, I don't know if it was the federal funds rate. I know a 30-year bond was at 18% in 1980, but I'm not sure the federal funds rate was 18%. Can you Google that too, Chris? Mm-hmm. Um, but I know 30-year bonds was at 18% in 1980. On the flip side, it looks like both inflation and the federal funds rate were near zero post-2008, only until last year. Don't quote me on these exact numbers, but I'm just giving examples. Perhaps the federal funds rate doesn't correlate with interest, or does it? Right now, he said, I'm able to get five and a quarter APY on a fully liquid savings account at a local credit union. Yet a few years ago, that was unheard of. He kind of wants to know, folks, he's a young kid, only 38, probably doesn't remember the 19, I don't think he was born in the 1980s. Um, anyways, did you find the fed funds rate in 1980?
2: Mm -hmm. So throughout 1980, uh, starting in January, it was uh, about 14% went up to almost 20% by March dipped back down, uh, quickly thereafter. So it peaked at, uh, 19.7. It looks like in March.
3: So that was a definite inverted yield curve. Because the 30-year, you could buy a 30-year in 1980 paying about 18%. So that was a flat, if not inverted uh, yield yeah, curve for I'd, a little Yeah, it would be
2: inverted back then. That was a recessionary um, situation.
3: But... Okay, so he's very astute. They mm-hmm. don't move in lockstep, uh, inverse locksteps, rather, like interest rates do I mean with inverse the price of lockstep. bonds. When interest rates go up, bonds go down, and when... When interest rates go down, bonds go up. It's not quite that in lockstep. But you don't remember this, listener? In the 1970s, there was rampant inflation. Rampant. I remember. I was only a kid. But I remember. I remember it at the kitchen table eating fried bologna and hamburger because my family couldn't afford a lot of the other food that we used to eat. It was going through the roof. So to get rampant inflation under control, similar to what you said you are experiencing now, you couldn't get any type of yield on your cash accounts until just this year. And last year, it was down near zero. The reason why all of a sudden interest rates uh, have gone up and they're no way near the rates they were, as you rightly pointed out in the 70s and, and early 80s. They're no way near that. But the reason why interest rates started going up is inflation, which is really um, too many dollars chasing too few goods, which causes the prices to to go up. To get inflation under control, the the Fed needs to slow the economy, needs to take the froth out of the economy. And when interest rates are too low, it becomes cheap to borrow money. So people borrow millions and millions and millions of people, not just one or two here and there. And companies by the boatloads will borrow. They borrow money and they go out and buy things and it can cause the economy to be stimulated. That's the hope. But if it gets stimulated too much and starts causing prices to go up, what the fed needs to do is remove the punch bowl so to speak and get the easy money out and stop people from borrowing and that's why they raise interest rates so it's kind of the fed's tool for controlling uh, what they deem to be high inflation so they're not they are kind of correlated but it's more of a reaction that the fed has To high prices. And Volcker was his name who came in under the Reagan administration, I believe it was. He might have started under the Carter administration, I'm not sure. But he's the one who finally agreed the, the, the the head of the Fed to really ramp up interest rates high to kill. This incessant rampant inflation from the mid-70s into the early 80s. So you're a little bit spoiled in the sense the Fed has kind of gotten inflation under control, if you believe their numbers, after about a year and a half of raising interest rates from near zero to about 5%. And um, that caused a lot of pain, but nothing compared to the way it was in the late 70s and early 80s. So I, I don't know if you can, can draw any conclusions from all of this little tirade, but you are correct. Generally speaking, when there's high inflation, the Fed will raise interest rates or take away the punch bowl, as the saying goes. And conversely, if the economy begins to slow, the Fed lowers interest rates like they started to do after the 9-11 attacks. And then when that kind of mellowed out, they raised the rates again. Then things went to hell in a handbasket uh, in 08. So they lowered the rates and they had to. They had to stimulate the economy. The problem is, is they admit, and I feel they left them a little low, uh, excuse me, quite low, uh, much too long. And that helped to lead to a lot of the inflationary issues we ran into in uh, 2020. Two and a little bit into 2023. Now, COVID got a lot of the blame as well, um, causing some of the the price spike. But to get inflation under control, the Fed raises rates. To stimulate the economy, the Fed lowers rates. Anything you want to add on that to a young listener?
2: Yeah. Um, this obviously isn't. We're not going to get into a complete discussion of interest rates because there's you know very different story or or subtle differences at least between long-term interest rate behavior and short-term interest rate behavior and the natural interest rates that would occur in the presence of inflation. Since inflation is a component of an interest rate, expected inflation is, that's how lenders decide to charge uh, for the use of their money. When you loan money, you want to have protection from expected inflation as the person who borrowed it uses it before they give it back to you. So inflation plays a direct role in setting the interest rates in any given particular, you know, in a certain circumstance, then we've got the, you through the federal reserve in there, which then manipulates interest rates for, you know, to, to accomplish their goals. You know, they have stated goals of, of price stability and maintaining full employment and, uh um, so yeah, there's it's lots of moving parts in there. But yes, if you go back and look at a a chart, inflation versus interest rates, they are going to match very very closely with one another. But there's exaggerations that happen and some manipulations that happen in there uh, through Fed actions that that we see. So um, I've you know I I don't recall you you writing to me or reading what, or at least I forgot what he stated his goal was. And you know, what, what was he hoping to use this information to do? Cause the he challenge didn't share
3: is that he didn't share Chris. He yeah. just, everything in his email is what I read. Yeah. So, I mean, he's without still knowing young what young interest
2: enough, rates will be or inflation will be, if you had a crystal ball that could tell you that, that would certainly give you power to make decisions that would be to your advantage. But it's something that is essentially, uh, unknowable, uh, by, uh, you know, by humankind, if you will. Um, um, we have I think certain the best expectations advice but... we
3: can give someone who's 38 is to stay invested. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, got mm-hmm. listener. I don't think you need any bonds in your portfolio at 38 in your retirement portfolio. If you're saving dollars for other shorter term needs, absolutely. But in your retirement portfolio, you're going to want to own assets that have a good chance of keeping pace, if not exceeding inflation. Equities, among others, can help do that, although there are studies out there that show equities don't do a good job. So uh, Google and research on your own and see. But to me, at your age, I wouldn't worry, honestly, too much about trying to time interest rates and all that other kind of stuff. Leave that to the older you to have to worry about. I would just try to get as much growth as you can, and any hiccup in the equity markets for you should be looked at more as a buying opportunity. Now, that's just my own personal belief if you're 38 years old. Now, unless you're going to be one of these fire people and try to retire at 40, but if you're going to be working to 65, 70, uh, you got plenty, plenty of time. Take this as buying opportunities when markets were down like they were last year. All right, let's get into the email from a gentleman. Uh, Let's try to end the show with some of the things that he pointed out. This is going back to our original dialogue series, folks. uh, This listener lives in the state of Arizona, and uh, he begins, I have applied the security time and income process for the past three years. I put myself at the high end of the Vanguard engineering do-it-yourself scale as I retired at the end of last year after 46 years of hands-on engineering and senior engineering management. So we have a definite engineer here, folks, a VG himself. We use a structure to your minimum dignity floor to get to a fun number as well as the asset allocation For various sleeves. Several aspects drew us to your approach. The first is visibility into the portfolio to visualize the spending and address emotional aspects to stay invested in poor times. Let me pause there. So remember, folks, this is going back to our original dialogue series on what do you do for retirement. So he's sharing one of the things he likes is what I call the see-through portfolio concept. When I started creating the vision I had of the fun number, one of the metaphors I, I use, and I really never used this metaphor before in the podcast, I don't think, was children or think back to your childhood, and you had a toy box. Most toy boxes were not see-through, and they were a box. I had one. It was a brown wooden toy box, and it was in the playroom that my parents had set up for my sister and I. And inside the toy box were my toys. And I would go to the toy box and have to open it to see if the toy I wanted was in there. And invariably, the toy I wanted was always at the bottom, never at the top. And you have to start taking the toys out of the toy box. And don't you remember your parents always yell at you, put your toys back in the toy box. And that's kind of the same thing with your portfolio. We did a whole podcast series called The Opposite. We got to redo that one this year. And I truly meant it, that you cannot enter retirement with the same asset management approach that you used in pre-retirement because retirement is the mirror opposite of pre-retirement. Decumulation is the opposite of accumulation and you cannot do the same. Sadly, in my industry, they try to do the same because they love their uncapped AUM. And my industry wants to continue taking one, one and a quarter, one and a half, eight-tenths, seven-tenths, six-tenths, whatever the hell it is they want to take from you. They want to take it from you forever so they have you enter retirement with the same accumulation mindset solely so they can take their fee. Okay, I don't do things that way. And I always thought this notion of entering retirement— With this glob of money, whether it's 500,000 or 5 million, irrespective, it doesn't matter. It's whatever you have saved to keep it in an allocation of 60 40, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 70% stocks, 30% bonds, or 40% stocks, 60% bonds if you're conservative, whatever the hell breakdown you wanted. That works in the accumulation phase because you're having no negative debits from it. But in the distribution phase, it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. And this gentleman picked up on them. And it was my thought that if I believe passionately because I saw too many of my clients die or get diagnosed with a disease shortly into retirement. That I did not want my clients to limit spending on fun to some godforsaken safe withdrawal rate when you are not going to be spending on fun at the same degree in your 70s as you did in your 60s or in your 80s as you did in your 70s. And to acknowledge that if I could just help people figure out on this toy box, of a portfolio that you can't see in. If you could see into it like I did as a little kid when I lifted the top of my damn toy box and started looking in for the one toy I wanted and I started pulling out all these other toys and finally found it, what if that same concept could carry through to your retirement? If we could look into your portfolio and pull out, not toys, but the spending tasks that those dollars were assigned to, minimum dignity floor, food, utilities, transportation, housing, health care. Picture these, this kid removing this from your portfolio of your toy box. Pull out food, pull out utilities, transportation, housing, health care, pull out aging, both the Expenses for growing old and having people come in and help you with some landscaping or house cleaning, as well as long-term care needs. Pull out your guaranteed inheritance. Pull out a buffer and a reserve. Pull out future uh, children's education and children grandchildren's education and children's weddings are the, the two biggest other categories you may want to pull out of your portfolio. The aim is to pull out all the spending. And what the hell is left, folks? That last darn toy that was at the bottom of my toy box, the one I wanted, and the one retirees want, that we call what, Chris?
2: We call that the fund number.
3: Exactly. That's the concept of the see-through portfolio. Now, sadly, for years, as a firm... We pulled all the toys out of your toy box and always remembering what my parents used to yell to me. What did we do with all the other toys once we pulled it out, Chris, from an investment management standpoint? We put them all back into the damn toy box. And we went back to managing a portfolio as one big portfolio again that you can't see through anymore. But I did have your fun I I subtracted that out, but I threw everything back in. And here's the problem with that. And this gentleman picked up on it. Emotions and sequence of return risk. When you pull out your toys in retirement, not the toys as a kid, but the toys in retirement, minimum dignity floor needs from retirement to Social Security, what we call the delay period, those need to be invested very securely. Maybe dollars you wanted to reserve for your grandchild's education in eight years need to be invested much differently than a buffer that you hope to need in your late 80s or a long-term care reserve into your mid to late 80s. Yet I threw all the toys back into the toy box, always remembering my parents yelling at me, put the damn toys away after you get the toy you want. But I stopped doing that, I forget how many years ago now, but I shared the story of the teardrop camper. The gentleman couldn't quite understand. Go back and listen. You know what I'm talking about. And it's to help overcome the emotional fear of spending your money and the irrational fear that even as a 60, 65, 70-year-old retiree who gives a damn if your portfolio is dropping or the market is down rather, 30 40 50%. Seriously, who cares? If some of those dollars aren't going to be needed for another 20 years, who cares if those dollars are down 10 20 30%? If you don't need them for 20 years, it's the dollars that you're going to spend on go go fun and minimum dignity floor and maybe your kids, grandkids education or daughter's wedding that might happen in a couple of years it's those dollars that need to be protected so i started thinking i took all these toys out of the toy box what the hell am i putting them back in for i need to create a see-through portfolio i need a toy box not made out of solid wood stained brown i need a plexiglass toy box wouldn't that be easy as a kid where's the toy to look right into the toy box and see if it's in there. And then I'll see exactly where it is. But they don't have plexiglass toy boxes, but we can have a see-through portfolio. And that gave birth to the concept Chris and I term positioning. We're going to take your dollars and get out from this 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, 40-60, 30-70, whatever your mix is, portfolio and start investing your dollars for the specific spending task they're assigned to. And I call it not time-segmented investing, spending-segmented investing. So this listener, brilliant as he is being an engineer, picked up on that and kind of liked that, Chris. Anything you want to add to that little tirade?
2: No, it's nice to hear that somebody is kind of seeing some of the value in that that we do.
3: Okay, an additional aspect, he continues, we found attractive, you, that you do not highlight enough, is the process also meets the goal of, and this is quote from him, quote, taking the minimum risk to accomplish one's goal, end quote, the discrete asset liability matching for each sleeve, we also call it position, not a sleeve, for each sleeve, Facilitates minimizing, almost skipped that one, minimizing portfolio risk. I think this is a unique feature. What do you think of that? Because he's Mm -hmm. right. But I I, I do think we talk about that, but maybe not enough. I don't think we talk about it
2: the way he described it. And it it does, um, you know, by only taking as much risk as is necessary to have each what he called sleeve or position accomplish its goal. It does kind of lead you to a structured way of accomplishing the lowest risk necessary to meet the goal overall look to the portfolio. So I hadn't, I I don't know that we've talked about it in that context, but kind of a nice side effect.
3: Well, I have talked about it in the sense I've said that we follow asset liability mapping. Absolutely, I've used those words. Um, But again, I don't play it up enough. But he is correct. And that's part of what we try to do. In fact, when we start trying to help people come up with their fun number, especially if we're helping people manage their assets, in retirement, we have All our clients have positioned portfolios, see-through portfolios. Excuse me. As a firm, we lack the software. The industry doesn't have software that approaches see-through portfolios. Because, again, the industry, folks, is all about managing your assets for an AUM fee. Well, the way we approach retirement is not easy. It's a lot of work. And it's very difficult to do. It's a hell of a lot easier to be able to uh, scale an AUM practice by keeping all people to a 4% safe withdrawal rate on one big 60-40, 70-30, 80-20 portfolio based on your quote-unquote risk tolerance. And they're going to limit you to a little bit of a withdrawal every year. It's so easy to do that and be able to charge their 1% uncapped unlimited asset management fee. So that is easy for them to do, but we play up or not play up, but we do believe in breaking the portfolio into that see-through portfolio and invest it based on the risk capacity, not the risk tolerance of the person. Which is how an accumulation advisor generally manages money, but they have to carry this over to decumulation so they can continue charging their fee on one nice big portfolio because it's so scalable for them. We don't believe in the easy approach. Retirement is not easy. It truly isn't. That's when you need an advisor. You don't need one in the accumulation phase. I've said this time and time again. Probably pisses off people in my industry, but I don't think you need to pay for an investment advisor in the accumulation phase. But in the distribution phase, I really do think you need to pay a financial planner, not necessarily an investment advisor. But what we do is asset liability mapping in the sense each position has a risk capacity. We do have to pay attention to the risk tolerance or the client's emotional reaction to risk. But by breaking the portfolio, by pulling the toys out of the toy box, Helping clients see into, see through their portfolio. We can tell them, hey, this aging reserve, Mr. and Mrs. Client, you're 62 years old. You're relatively healthy for your age. We don't think in a perfect world you might need to worry about these aging reserve dollars for at least another 20 years. Now, we'll monitor this over the coming years, but right now we feel the risk capacity of these dollars is high. But let's look over here, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Client. You shared with us, your fund number is 1.2 million. Just making that number up. It could be 120,000 or it could be 1.2 million, doesn't matter. Your fund number is 1.2 million. You also shared with us, you would like to spend 60% of that if possible during your go-go years and at 62, you feel your go-go phase will last about a decade. So now we would take 60% of 1.2 million, which is what, Chris? Help me out here. Six, 700-something thousand? 60%
2: of 1.2 million?
3: Yeah. 720.
2: Seven yeah, thousand. I shouldn't have second-guessed myself. That's my brain is telling me, but...
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're going to take that 700-something thousand, and that has, in our opinion, a principal protected risk capacity. We want to protect those dollars. It doesn't mean no growth. And there's ways we can do this. But we want it principally protected. Why? Just as this listener astutely picked up, by protecting those – seeing through his portfolio and protecting the go-go dollars – He emotionally feels comfortable spending them, whereas knowing the dollars he may not need for 20 years for aging, he's much more emotionally inclined to watch those dollars drop, especially if he's only one, two, three, four, five years into a 20-year-old. He's much more comfortable watching those dollars drop if he could then at the same time see Wow, my go-go money, that hasn't dropped at all. And my minimum dignity floor delay period dollars, that hasn't dropped at all. And my long-term minimum dignity floor is covered with lifetime secure income. I gave the explicit promise to the older me, so I still have permission from the older me to spend these fun dollars even though the market is down. That's the whole concept, and he's picked up on it. But he did want to share with us, before we wrap up, Chris, two things that he has done that we don't do. There are two additional analysis I tacked onto your process to close the loop on risk tolerance and plan resilience. First, I matched the resulting overall portfolio competition composition to our perceived risk tolerance. And I have. And he goes on to explain what he's doing. I have no problem with what he's doing here, and if it works for you, God bless you. He has a preconceived idea of what his risk tolerance is. Personally, and I tell all our asset management slash retirement clients this, because if you hire us to manage assets in retirement, you have to do a retirement analysis first because we manage distribution portfolios only as a see-through portfolio. And in order to get your toys out of the toy box, we have to run an analysis. I don't really pay much attention to risk tolerance of our clients. Now, if you're an advisor, you're probably like, holy moly, did he just say what I think he said? In an accumulation portfolio, which we still do for clients, absolutely I pay attention to risk tolerance. But in a distribution portfolio, I look at the risk capacity of each position or each sleeve, if you will. The risk capacity is a measure of if these dollars fell, with the spending that those dollars were earmarked for need to be cut in that year. Okay, think of this concept. If you have an aging reserve that you don't need for 20 years, or at least it's estimated you won't need it for 20 years, this is your long-term care. This is Jim's dad situation at 89, living in a nursing home, unable to do one of six activities of daily living. And if you ask me, more like three activities of his daily living he now can't do. That's long-term care. He didn't need this until he was 89. So those are dollars for a very long time for now. Emotionally, yes, you might be a little concerned if you're three years into a 20-year hold and they're down. But I personally still feel those dollars have a large risk capacity because a 20% drop in those dollars doesn't mean you have to cut your aging reserve or what you're spending on aging is a better way of putting it because you're not spending it yet. You still got 17 more years if you're only three years into it, in my example. So I'm paying more attention to the risk capacity of those dollars and would encourage that client to invest it aggressively. But if that client's going to lose sleep over a 20, 30, 40 percent drop in those dollars, even though they know they're not going to need them for a very long time, that's risk tolerance. And if that's still going to bother them, then there's things we do and have done. We use a lot of those buffered ETFs that we talk about in our aging reserves because we do have some clients who just will freak out from a risk tolerance standpoint. So what this gentleman is saying is, hey, I kind of have this see-through concept, but I'm looking at all these different sleeves, all these different positions and trying to make sure I maintain overall. My stated risk tolerance, let's just say, is moderate, 60-40. So he's trying to make sure that all his positions match 60-40. I personally have no problem with that if it makes him feel good. What do you think, Chris?
2: Well, when you say all his positions, what he's saying is, is when you look, step back and look at the whole thing, are you ending up at about 60-40?
3: Right, because he does indicate 60-40 yeah. slash 50 Yeah, So
2: not, not every individual sleeve, because it sounds like he's constructing those individual pieces, the individual toys in the toy box. Then he's standing back and saying, let's just let's view this from a high level. And where did we end up? And just as kind of a verification to him or confirmation that they haven't drifted too far from their risk tolerance target. Um, and and honestly, I've seen this a lot. That once all the positioning is done, and you've got you know principal protection or cash for the early years of spending, you've got later reserves that are exposed to more risk for obvious you know risk capacity uh, justification, uh, all this thing. And then when you step back, it turns out that a lot of people end up being invested. What many times um, retirees would be you know, consider to be somewhat normal, maybe moderate or moderately conservative somewhere in there, which might lead some people to believe, gee, that was a lot of work to just end up at a 40-60 portfolio. What I like to tell people, though, is even if you end up where you kind of were going to go anyway, maybe from an AOM perspective, now you know why. You've got the clarity of why you're that way, not just, oh, gee, some guy told me I should be 40-60 or 50-50 or whatever it was. Let your assets, your spending intention, what you're trying to accomplish with the money, determine your overall allocation, not starting with the allocation first. So, yeah, good stuff from this guy.
3: The final thing that he does, folks, he applies Monte Carlo, and we don't. He, he very eloquently explains why, but I know we're probably short on time, so I can't get into it. Right, Chris?
2: Yeah, probably not. I think you've got a commitment yeah. here shortly. but uh,
3: So uh, he, he does eloquently explain why he also takes the, the plan and applies Monte Carlo to it. And he acknowledges we don't. And, and I still don't. And I have nothing against it. He, he calls out Money Guide Elite. He uses Money Guide Elite. And um, I... I Don't know if he gets it through a subscription. Can you get that on your own? I don't think so. I think he must belong, because some groups will offer Money Guide, but I don't know. Money Guide is a, uh, we don't use it in the office, but it's a more, it's a professional grade Mm -hmm. financial planning program. Same thing with eMoney. I know some groups like the Rock Retirement Club, don't they offer their members a subscription to one of those?
2: Yeah, there's certain levels. I don't think they have access to everything that an advisor has, but they're, Some of these companies are now realizing there's a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there that want some of the professional tools that advisors use, so they're making them available uh, to others. But I don't recall exactly what is provided to the Rock Retirement folks.
3: Now, I have, again, nothing against Monte Carlo per se. I think it's – I question the the value of it. I truly do. But if it makes you feel good to see probability statistics, which – that and a nickel won't get your cup of tea in China, as the saying goes. That's fine. He likes it. He wants to use it. Where I kind of look at things the way I prefer to do it, and this is my own approach. If if you're a if you're a client of ours, you can easily override us. And if you do it yourself, you do it whatever the hell way you want. But when we position a portfolio. And we have broken, we took the toys out of the toy box. You have that see-through portfolio. And you have all these different little toys, minimum dignity floor, delay period, post-delay period, aging reserve, guaranteed inheritance, buffer, whatever it is you have. Whatever your toys are, you can have as many toys as you, you want. When we have that all broken up, each toy is assigned a spending task. That's the whole point. Each position in your portfolio is assigned a spending task. We don't just randomly assign a spending task and then just guess like Chris just alluded to with a 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever portfolio that a lot of accumulation people don't tell you what you should have. We don't just randomly assign an allocation to it. We explain to people what the risk capacity and the targeted rate of return is. For instance, aging, let's go back to that one. For years, we had a 4% targeted rate of return. Doesn't mean every year has to be exactly 4%, but we would want at minimum, over the life of the whole, a 4%. That was tied to the historic cost of aging uh, for long-term care expenses. But we raised that 20%, 25% to 5% a couple of years ago. And that caused us to start to change our allocation. That's a big increase in expected return that we had to do. But we look at and monitor the cost of aging, especially when we break it down to the section of the country that people live in because they have different costs in different sections. So different clients could theoretically have a different targeted rate of return for aging. But what we look at is the performance of the portfolio, not short term, so we don't panic if there's a down year like there was in 2022. But what I'm paying more attention to is what is the required or targeted rate of return for that task And does the portfolio have a reasonable chance of achieving that? Now, if he's analyzing each position or if a do-it-yourselfer analyzes each position and wants to use a Monte Carlo projection of each investment position to see if it has a chance of achieving that targeted rate of return, I have no problem with that. You can do it. We still don't. Instead, what we look at is again the client's situation, their life expectancy. Has anything changed? Has there been any diagnosis? Um, sadly, some people get diagnosis. We're living too long is no longer an issue. It's going to be dying too soon, or whatever the case may be. I kind of monitor it at each position level. I haven't yet seen a value. To what Monte Carlo is going to do to say to somebody now at, say, 65 and just making that age up, that you have a 98% chance that at age 85, your portfolio will achieve the targeted rate of return. I don't see a value in that, but many people do. And if it makes you feel good, build it in. Instead, what we look at from an investment standpoint is we monitor the investments, we look at their historical returns, we look at the cost associated with that task, and is the targeted rate of return still reasonable? Just like we recently, over the past two years, raised to 5% the aging reserve, we are now lowering the inflation increase on recreation of what we call go-go spending, fun spending, because the recreation CPI has dropped quite a bit, and we're lowering it from 4.3. I haven't quite figured it out exactly what, but I will be lowering it from 4.3 downward. And that, again, helps us to make sure that the fun money is not taking on more risk than needed, but still earning... What I don't want to necessarily say a minimum rate of return because in any given year it might get more or less. But overall, we want to make sure those dollars have the ability to keep pace with recreation CPI. But dollars that clients are going to need that year or within a year or two, we want to make sure they are fully principal protected. And it would be wonderful if it could also keep pace with recreation CPI. And that is so easy to do now with CDs and MICAs. We can get rates of return greater than what the inflationary pressures of recreation are, but certainly not maybe the inflation um, pressures of a long-term care need. So we kind of look at it that way. But if you can benefit from um, a Monte Carlo and you like that, I have absolutely no problem with it. And if you have the software to be able to do it, And the mindset of an engineer to to painstakingly program the software and monitor that, and you like that probability, I I have absolutely no problem with it. What are your thoughts, Chris, as you wrap this up? I think
2: he seems really astute, so I think he's not going to fall into the trap that I believe most people do with the use of Monte Carlo is they're using the information from a Monte Carlo analysis inappropriately they're interpreting it incorrectly or applying it to their situation, making decisions, using it. Um, I think, you know, lately I've, I've seen kind of a pivot a little bit for advisors that are enthusiastic about using Monte Carlo and they're framing it in a, uh, as a, what's the the chance of, of needing to make adjustments kind of an approach. Um, and, and I think that that's probably the best use for it is that as you, um, have your Monte Carlo results uh, maybe start to decline? The percentage of success is usually how it's portrayed. Uh, you don't uh, think of it as what's the deal on on the last day? Am I you know you know I've got a twenty percent chance of running out of money? We all know, and this is one of the reasons you and I have had real hesitation with using it effectively. Is that uh, people aren't going to just fly their plane into the ground, right? They're not just going to run their money out. Uh, So the Monte Carlo statistics showing you've got a 20% chance of hitting zero isn't factoring in uh, human behavior, how you're going to react to a a trajectory that's headed to the ground. Um, But, you know, these folks who have kind of reframed that conversation are doing it as a, this gives us some feedback as to the likelihood of you needing to make a change if things don't work out so well for you, if you end up on, I don't know, somewhere towards the negative uh, end of the distribution of of outcomes. Um, but the actionability of it is is um, questionable, uh, I believe, because by the time you realize you're on one of those paths, a lot of time has gone by, uh, and that information might be a little late to do you a lot of good. Plus, I've kind of been wrestling with how we could incorporate something more Monte Carlo-like into our some of what we do, And trying to segregate those decisions to just the fund money, uh, I think, would be the best use in our case. You know, more the the chance you might have to alter your fund kind of a situation uh, might be a little bit useful to some people. um, But I haven't really discovered an effective way of of segregating it like that. But
3: But here's the issue with that, though, Mm -hmm. Chris, because I've thought of the same thing. And we Mm -hmm. talk about this a lot as a group. Everything feeds down to and up from the fund number. Now, some people do have non-positioned assets. In other words, they have funded what we call their fund vision number, and they even after doing that, they still have money left over. So for them, everything feeds down to and up from what we call non-positioned assets. And those assets are, after we've done everything, went through the whole fund number, we took all the toys out of the toy box, there's still some money left. Not everybody has that, but many people do, but not everybody. Those dollars would be invested based on your risk tolerance, most likely with just one big portfolio. Okay, outside of that, for most people, everything feeds down to or up front from the fund number. By analyzing each position every year and not panicking in any given year, and last year was a down year and few positions except for the principally protected dollars, which are delay period MDF, post delay period MDF. And go-go fund, not slow-go and no-go, but go-go fund. Those are the three positions that we categorize as principally protected dollars. And I don't want to get into today what we invest and how we consider that. There'll be another podcast for the future. Except for those positions, all positions were down. But people didn't panic, which is good. You don't have to when you can see everything. But my goal long term is to look, let's go back to aging. Let's just say five years, six years, seven years in your aging reserve is not keeping pace with the CPI of age related expenses or age related expenses go from five to five and a half or six or something. And your portfolio hasn't kept pace. That's one scenario. The other scenario, your portfolio more than kept pace with five. It's averaged eight. Just making this up, but averaged eight. Because remember, it can be invested for growth. And what if it's a spurt, a great year and great eight year period? We had a great 11 year period before the last market correction. So, what if eight years in, you are significantly under or modestly? under where we want you to be, or modestly or significantly over. The conversation is going to be the same. Monte Carlo would show your probability of failure increasing with the one that's under, and your probability of exceeding is greater in the one that's over. That's just common sense. But we sit and would chat with the client, what do you want to do? Because ultimately, retirement is a seesaw ride between the younger you and the older you. And remember, I said, there'll always be an older you. You might retire at 60. Now you're eight years in. You're 68. It's still the younger you. You're on the left side of the seesaw. The older you is on the right side of the seesaw. Everything we do to help the older you go up is going to cause the younger you to go down and vice versa. That's retirement. And the conversation will be, gee, Mr. and Mrs. Client, we're eight years into this. Your half-million-dollar reserve, I'm making these numbers up. I can't compound it in my head this quickly, but your half-million-dollar reserve should be 580000 by now. We're only at five forty. Do you want to pull up $40,000 from your fund reserve, whether it's from go-go, slow-go, or no-go? Do you want to make you go down on the seesaw and make the older you go up? Do you want to keep it the way it is and let's see what the future brings? Or do you want us to pull some up? Conversely, gee, Mr. and Mrs. Client, we wanted you to have 580,000 by now, eight years in for your reserve. You got 650. Do you want to take that extra 70,000 do you want to push it down to the fund and start using some of that now at 68 for additional fund do you want to go do additional things it's a negotiation it's a seesaw ride well, gee, Jim, you know, I'm 68, but I've just recently been diagnosed with pre-onset dementia. No, I don't want it. extreme case, folks, but you get what I'm getting at. So, no, I don't want to bleed that extra 70000 In fact, I'm kind of going to stop spending on fun. I fear I'm going to need these dollars. Oh, gee, Jim, absolutely. Both my wife and I are still healthy. Uh, our children moved away to Hawaii. We have two grandkids. I'd love to be able to spend a whole year in Hawaii. I don't want to get rid of my house. But I want to rent a place and spend a year in Hawaii. It's going to cost us $40,000. But wow, yes, we'd love to be able to do that. And, and we agree. We, we know what we're doing. We're taking it from the, the older us, so to speak. But we still feel we're keeping pace with what we promised the older us. That's how I envision this going. And it's a negotiation. I've often said, Chris, i firm, We're an anvil. Is that what it's called? The fulcrum. We're the fulcrum of that seesaw. Monte Carlo is just this nebulous number that truly, to me, doesn't make any sense. And maybe it's because I don't have an engineer brain. I just got this weird brain. And I just look at things differently. To me, you work with an advisor not to rely on some nebulous number from some software program that I, I can't even open Excel. I don't even know how they come up with Monte Carlo calculations. I don't. But what I just described, I know how that works. That's called life. That's called common sense. That's called a conversation. That's called an advisor who truly is looking out for me and uh, advocating for me. He has a personalized approach. And it seems it's convenient This this advisor is doing it for me. He's personalizing and he's advocating for me. That to me is what retirement planning is. So that's why I still kind of favor looking at it at each individual position level and being that fulcrum of the seesaw. Because ultimately, listeners, that's what retirement is. Either you're going to spend it now or you're going to spend it later. And by having this see-through portfolio and being able to pull up from fun or push down to fun, or for those of you who truly do have non-positioned assets, you're in a much better situation because you could be, well, I want to protect my fund the way it is. Let's take some of these non-positioned assets. Let's pull some of that and dedicate it towards my aging shortage. Anyways, that's my thoughts. Mm-hmm okay
2: well that'll wrap our last edu show of 2023 so I want to thank everybody again for listening this year if you've been with us for the whole year welcome if you're newer than that uh next show i think this is the last dialogue show correct so we'll start off fresh. well yeah
3: unless they're going to add more days to the year no
2: we could still do one in january <laughs> right oh no,
3: no no i thought you meant for this year No, we're it's not, the last we're not ending I, I, the
2: show at this point right <laughs>
3: Well, we're supposed to stick to quarterly, so yeah. we'll be entering the first quarter. Yeah. So we won't do dialogue again until March, yeah. with our fingers crossed that by then we might be able to do it live. But no promises. Okay.
2: So we'll uh, come up with something new for next week as we enter the new year. Hope your uh, last few days of 2023 go well. We'll have a and a show. It'll be the very, very final show of 2023. We'll squeeze that one in right before new year's eve so you can look forward to that if you want one last chance of getting on a 2023 q a show send your questions into jim jim at jimhelps.com is his email address put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast you never know you might get plucked out of the hat for uh, uh consideration here the very last show of 2023 so stay tuned for that and thanks a lot and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes, but even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970 530 0556
0: is offered through Jim Saulnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.